This is a show for missionary disciples who worship Christ in the Eucharist and serve him in their neighbor, for whom the words of the creed reverberate through their daily activity. This is the show for those like you and me who make the conscious choice to follow Christ outside the walls. We're deep into the season of Lent where we are invited to take a look at our lives. And I've said this many, many times over the course of this show, that that Advent is that season that we can look around and recognize that all is not right with the world. And to know that as we go through that season with anticipation, that Christmas brings with it the, the mystery of the incarnation, that God became man and dwelt among us, that he would be our God and we would be his people, and that through the incarnation, God is answering that that question and that problem that all is not right with the world, that his his incarnation came to reconcile the cosmos, to bring it back into line where it was out of line. And I've said many, many times that Lent is that season that we can look at ourselves and say, you know what, all is not right with me. And that the Paschal mystery, this mystery of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ comes to answer those things in us that are not right. And I still believe that. I believe that this is, um, in broad swaths, the, a good picture of Lent and of, of Advent. But I want to focus on something and maybe shine a light a little bit more clearly on this. Because as I talk about Lent being that season of introspection, uh, I think that the focus is maybe in a little bit the wrong place. That yes, there is uh, something that we need to recognize, that all is not right with us, that there is uh, a, a direction that we need to be moving uh, toward holiness, right? There is a goal that we are shooting for. There is uh, something that we are not quite meeting up to, even if we are are well on our way towards holiness. And even as we are missionary disciples and listening and following the voice of God, there are still things that we continue to do, sins that we continue to commit, uh, friendly things that we think, oh, well, that temptation's not so bad. And we allow ourselves to dwell there. And so, yes, there is a need for us to move away from those places and to move more thoroughly uh, in the direction of a disciple, following after Jesus to the difficult places. But here's where I think that I've not maybe stressed this clearly enough. Because I, I use the language, and I have used the language, that, um, that it's a time for us to recognize, and a time for us to, to do some interior looking, right? Some introspection. And here is where I think that that doesn't quite sum up the season of Lent adequately. Because Lent is not a season of self-help. It's not something that we can pull out the the checklist and say, okay, I'm going to look at myself now and I'm going to evaluate how how I've done this last year. You know, we do that for New Year's Eve and our New Year's resolutions in, in the secular sphere. That's not what Lent is about. Lent is an opportunity for us to enter into this mystery of the incarnation and of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, to recognize 
that it's not within our power to make ourselves better. It's not within our power to somehow, you know, muscle through these temptations and take control of our lives again. And somehow through that act of self-will and introspection and, and uh, an extra dose of uh, holiness through our, through our actions, through our, uh, our penances, that somehow we end up better on the other side. It's precisely the opposite. It's recognizing that only through the, the incarnation, only through the graces that come from the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, can we ever hope to, to, to approach holiness. And so perhaps a better way to say this is that Lent is the time that the church gives us as an opportunity for silence. She gives us some exercises, some things that we can do through prayer and fasting and almsgiving and focusing on those things, uh, not for the sake of prayer and fasting and almsgiving necessarily, but all of these are directed towards connection with God. Because it's in that place, in a place where we let go of all the extras. As the book of Hebrews says that we lay aside every weight and every sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Here in this place where we come into union and connection with Jesus Christ, where we come and we are filled with the Holy Spirit, here is where we begin to recognize our own inadequacies. Not as a way to beat ourselves up and say, oh gosh, I'm never going to measure up, which is true. Rather, it's a way for us in that connection to say, God alone suffices, right? All of these other things that I might try to do to, to somehow be better, God alone suffices. For the saints who go out and they, they do this extraordinary work on behalf of the kingdom, they do so because of their connection with God. Uh, the scripture says that the, the love of Christ compels us. And so, yes, this takes us to sanctity. But we are compelled to do these works because of the connection, not the other way around. And so here we have this opportunity. We are invited to join ourselves in the season of Lent, to join ourselves to the cross. Because we are fallen. We do have flaws that we just keep going back to. But we're invited to meet Christ on the cross, to meet him in the difficult times, to meet him at the altar, to receive him in the Eucharist, to adore him in the sacrament. Here, where we meet Christ, we find the answer to that, that problem, that all is not right with me. And so Lent is really less about this time of introspection and more about this focused pursuit of the presence of Christ. And here's the thing. And Paul says this at the Areopagus uh, in Acts chapter 17. God is not far from us. Yes, we're invited to seek for him, but He's, he's really bad at playing hide-and-seek. He wants to be found by us. And so here we are. We're here in the season of Lent. And our goal is to meet with Christ. Our goal is to come and to meet him 
at the cross and to meet him at his resurrection and to see him for who he is, he who has longed throughout all of history to be our God and we to be his people and he to dwell among us and we with him. This is what we are really invited to do in Lent is to find consolation even in the midst of our weakness in the fact that God is with us. And not only is he with us, but he will remain with us even to the end of the age. Now, it's really easy to say these things. All you have to do is say the right words in the right order and string together a sentence, and out it comes. It can be quite a bit more difficult to actually experience and to encounter Christ in this season of life, both the season of Lent and just this season that we have been going through as a world. I've been uh, having a lot of conversations with folks uh, in recent days, and there is no small amount of loneliness going around. There's no small amount of feeling isolated and, and frightened in the midst of this pandemic uh, all across the world. I, I, not only as people have experienced the isolation that comes from the event itself, but in talking with people about what their expectations are moving forward, about how has this affected uh, my family and my kids and how are they going to deal with this moving forward and what has this year of, of absence meant? And so here we're invited in the season of Lent to take all these concerns and all of these worries and all of the uncertainty and to be vulnerable and open and honest with God about it. And I would encourage you to also be open and honest and vulnerable with someone nearby you, someone that you trust, because we are not alone in this. Everyone has experienced this uh, this difficulty over the course of the year in a very profound way, and no one, I think, is going to escape from this unscathed. But we're invited here in the season of Lent to bring these concerns into the presence of Christ. And we do that through prayer and fasting and almsgiving. We do that through, if we have the ability to go to in-person Mass, uh, to do that. If there's adoration available, to do that and to recognize that in these places, God wants to meet with us. This is something that's, uh, that is unique. Um, I grew up in a, in a non-Catholic tradition, and the idea that uh, that I could go and sit in front of the tabernacle and meet with God was a new concept coming into the Catholic Church. But I have to tell you, I have profoundly experienced the consolation of the Holy Spirit by sitting in silence, just not really doing anything, being in front of the sacrament. This is something that the church gives us in the doctrine of transubstantiation and the real presence of the Eucharist. And that's what we're going to be talking about on today's show. We're talking today with Dr. Timothy O'Malley, who is the Director of Education at the McGrath Institute for Church Life, one of my favorite places. He's also the Academic Director of the Notre Dame Center for Liturgy and teaches and researches at Notre Dame in the areas of liturgical, sacramental theology, catechesis, and aesthetics. And right now he's got a new book on Ave Maria Press called Real Presence, What Does It Mean and Why Does It Matter? You can find that at AveMariaPress.com. Dr. O'Malley, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. I really appreciate being on again. It's one of my favorite things to do to come on and talk to you. So, 
and and you're so diplomatic about it as well. <laughs> well, I'm sucking up a right. little. It, it's Is, a, am I allowed to suck up? Is that okay? No, that's abs- It's you know, it, it's uh, it's a it's a skill that not not everyone has. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So well, well done. <laughs> um, so I'm I'm reading over this book, uh, and really, it, it's it's a truly fantastic, clearly laid out uh, defense and apology for the, the church's teaching and, and explanation of the church's teaching on the real presence and on transubstantiation. Uh, you bring up in that the, the Pew study that comes out periodically. Why don't you unpack that for us and the various responses that you see to that, that perennial study that comes out? Sure. Like every two or three years, Pew makes uh, headlines by releasing the results of whether Catholics really believe in the real presence related to the Eucharist. Um, The Pew study itself has all sorts of actual problems to it. It doesn't use the proper language in referring to the church's theology of the Eucharist. So a lot of the times when people reject uh, the Eucharist, right, they, um, what they're rejecting in that statement, when they say, I don't believe that, it's not actually the Eucharistic presence. It says something like, I believe that, like, it's the, the Eucharist is the literal body of Christ or something like that, which is actually not what the church formally teaches uh, precisely because the historical body of Christ would be in heaven. So um, rather the church teaches that it's the sacramental body of Christ, the real presence, right? Bread and wine fully transformed, transubstantiated into Christ's body and blood. So I, I think in some ways that's the problem with the, the, the results, but every time it comes out, a kind of war results, right? So some people say like catechesis is terrible. People just don't know what's going on. I don't disagree with that. Um, I mean, I think that's broadly true, um, but I think sometimes the results are a bit intense around the Pew study. And then the other is a kind of like, why do we even care about this anymore? Like does transubstantiation matter? Um, do we really even need to talk about it? Why don't we care more about the poor and the hungry and the thirsty? Um, And so, in essence, I wanted to write a book that was a response to both, which is, yeah, you do need to know what real presence is. And it's a remarkable doctrine that is found in scripture and tradition and has implications for devotional life and our love of the hungry and the thirsty. Um, You know, it matters. But at the same time, right, like we want to know that. But and, and that's, I suppose, in reaction to those who would say like, well, it doesn't really matter. It still matters. It matters lots because mm-hmm. it's so connected to the totality of Catholic life. So that's really the purpose of the book. It's a kind of historical introduction to real presence, or at least chronological, and uh, a kind of meditation on what it would mean to appropriate and really believe the doctrine. Yeah. I grew up in a, in a Protestant tra- uh, tradition that that did communion once a once a month, right? First Sunday of the month, we would do uh, the the communion liturgy, and there was this kind of believe what you want about the Eucharist, believe what you want about communion in, in that tradition. So some people would say, you know, I, I I mystically encounter Christ in that, and He makes Himself real to me. And other people would talk about it just as being uh, a, a sign or a symbol um, in a in a merely uh, way that 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 recollects and doesn't do anything more than that, um, and there was no you, nothing beyond. Oh well, you know, we don't really know what it's about or what it happens. We're just doing this out of obedience because the Bible said to do it, right? <clears throat> and, and then uh, I have some friends that are of other faith persuasions that would would maybe even believe in some 
kind of Christ's presence being there, but they say, you know, transubstantiation is just kind of a bridge too far. We don't really care how it happens. We just trust God that it happens. So why is it important for us to hold to this doctrine of not only of uh, of real presence, as the even the Eastern churches would hold to, but to this very particular belief that the Catholic Church holds. Yeah, it's an important one. So I think uh, if you read the uh, Council of Trent's documents, it refers to transubstantiation as the most apt way of speaking of the Eucharist. And uh, so it, it provides a kind of grammatical structure by making sense of what we're talking about, right? And so what's the doctrine? Um, so the doctrine, of course, I think people often use it as shorthand for real presence, right? Um, but as you're pointing out, right, I have Anglican friends who hold a, a doctrine of real presence that don't sort of profess transubstantiation, right? right. So transubstantiation, of course, uh, it's often said it was given by Thomas Aquinas, which is not entirely true. It's actually defined before St. Thomas, and uh, at around 1215, it was pushed forward. And it simply means the substance. That is, and so this is confusing. Right. Um, the substance, right, which we think as stuff or matter, but substance in this sense is that which makes the thing what it is that you can't see or taste or touch, right? It's a, it, it's the over, it's thisness, it's isness, right? There's something about it. So what it is, is no longer bread and wine at all, right? At one moment in time, it is transformed into Christ's body and blood, right? Which cannot be seen, as St. Thomas says, or tasted or touched, uh, all of those things, right? It's it, it, The only thing you can do is faith alone suffices. But very importantly, St. Thomas is actually guarding against a, an extreme sort of almost cannibalistic account of the Eucharist that would say like, okay, so then that's all that matters. And then the bread and wine are just veils for what's really happening. But that's, no, the bread and the wine are sustained as accidents or uh, as species the, is the word in, uh, preferred word in Latin, which means its shape, its form, how it appears in taste and touch. So it's bestowed to us in the form of what looks and tastes like food, even if it isn't. And the miracle of the Eucharist, of course, is that those accidents remain even though the substance has changed and it's something different entirely. And so that's the doctrine. And the reason why it's important is because it, it describes Christ's total presence to us in a way that we can receive him, right? Christ wants to be totally present to us, wants to enter into union with the human person, and we want to enter into union with Christ. And yet we don't eat, we don't eat human flesh, right? right. It's, it's repugnant. So what the doctrine says is, no, Christ gives everything, him, his whole self to us, in union with us, and yet gives it in a way that we can receive it, in what tastes like bread, and acts like bread, and smells like bread, and tastes like wine, even though it's now Christ's body and blood. So I think that's the importance of the doctrine, and, you know, at least for me, getting it precise reveals really more the depths of the personal presence, that what's on that altar is not an object, mm -hmm. but a person who loves us and seeks to enter into union with us. Now, as you mentioned, this is this can get pretty, pretty tricky because of the words involved. I, I, I like to call this the, the Scooby-Doo paradox, right? Um, we have all been trained by Scooby-Doo that everything that is real is physical. 
Uh, everything has an explanation in the natural world, and all we have to do is unmask it, and we can figure it out. And uh, and we, they would have gotten away with it if it weren't for us pesky kids, right? So um, along those lines, we have a, a, a difficulty with I think the following words: one, the the word real, and it it's kind of funny that we're going to have a, a discussion and a debate over the word real, but we have a we've got to really kind of wrestle with what we mean by that word. Does real always mean uh, physical or can real mean actual? Uh, then, then there's the word, as you mentioned, substance. We tend to think of things, you know, oh, that, that's a substantial thing. We tend to think of that as having a lot of mass and a lot of, uh, of heft. Uh, so we've got real, we have substance, uh, and, oh, there was another one that I can't think of. But just start with those two and let's see if I can think of that other one in the, in the meantime. Sure. Yeah, I think so. One of the objections, right, is real presence. So it's often popularly said. So a lot of what I say are characteristics or caricatures I've seen in the academy. So an, another objection is like, okay, real is like, well, what kind of presence of Christ would not be real, right? So Christ is certainly present in the scriptures. He's uh, present in uh, the hungry and the thirsty and poor men and women upon our streets. He's present in the ordained minister. He's present in the altar, right? It, 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 all these sort of images and signs are Christ's presence. And of course, there's no such thing as an unreal presence of Christ. It's not like uh, I'm there or not. Um, really, I, I think, you know, as you said, the word actual or substantial presence, what makes the Eucharist distinct is that it's a distinct kind of presence, right? It's not in the mode of just sign, right? Mm -hmm. So, the altar is the presence of Christ as mediated through the sign. Right. Right. It recalls to us Christ is an image of Christ. It's an icon of Christ. The scriptures, um, of course, are, are sort of a similar way. Uh, in fact, probably even more so, right, because they're the, the sort of very word of God now spoken within the church, echoing out. Um, they're, they're that presence. But in the Eucharist, what we have is a substantial or, as you said, actual presence right? That is, it is physical, right? There is a physicality to it because it, it is given to us in what looks like bread and wine. We kneel before the blessed sacrament. We, we adore it. And so I, I, you must recognize that it, that there's a physicality to it, but it's not in, as if Christ is in a place being schlepped around, right? Or trapped in the tabernacle and sort of screaming out, it's that this matter, which looks like bread and wine, has totally and absolutely been transformed into Christ's body and blood, which gives us a preview of what all creation will be like at the end of time, right? Everything shall be transubstantiated in some way, shape, or form in Christ. And so there, there is this kind of vision that this is a foretaste of what is to come. But of course, now we eat or drink it in, in, in sort of in union. So I answered the question about real and actual I feel like I'll let, I'll take a break so that you can remind me what the second one. Well, the, the the second one I think we already talked to a little bit, and that was the question of substantial. Um, that that substance is the isness of something. Um, and the the definition, the the picture that I use, and I don't know if this is accurate or not, is that of a dollar bill, right? It's it's a kind of a cotton paper and ink, and I can take that cotton paper and I can take ink and I can do all kinds of things with it. But the minute that the the powers that be stamp it in a certain way and say, now this is no longer paper and ink. This is a dollar bill. And none of us are going to treat it like paper and ink. We're going to not going to toss it when we're done with it. We're not going to uh, deface it. We're going to use it for, for that which it was made. 
Um, and it, it now has a power that it would not otherwise have as paper and ink. And yet now it is, its isness has changed. It is a dollar bill that is made of paper and ink. Yes, I think that's broadly correct. The way, um, the one danger of it, sorry if I'm going to, please, is, it's something called transsignification, okay. which is that, uh, so this is one theory of the Eucharist, like, okay, so let's get rid of the language of substance. So what we use something for, as soon as we use it in a new way, it changes, right? So the body and blood of Christ, as soon as we start, it, it, bread and wine, as soon as we say this is body and this is blood, then it changes what it is, right? So it has a new signification. The thing about substance is, so yes, it, it pertains to use, but it has more to do, like, its fundamental isness. Um, the example I always use is my daughter um, is no expert in a variety of things in life. Um, she's three years old, almost four. <laughs> and so she doesn't have degrees in science. She d- lacks all that uh, sort of basic knowledge. What she does have is the ability to look at any dog and know that it, it is dog, right? Dog. That's dog. She doesn't get distracted by like, oh, um, so, so she can't like see dogness. You can't perceive or touch dogness, right? What is dogness? Or um, even like justice, this is Plato's question. What is justice, right? We, we can perhaps see you know, particular characteristics of justice, but justice is something more, right? So the substance is that which makes something what it is. It's its total form, it's its identity. It's in your example to put all of that, you know, the, the, the sort of paper and ink together in such a way that this becomes dollar bill, which is a substance, right? And, right. and whether we use it in that or not, I mean, we could wipe our nose with it, um, but it's still a dollar bill, right? It, 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 it is this thing. It is money. It, uh, but even you can't see it as money. You, it, there is a sort of reality that it is. So the, it, it's in some ways... We've overcomplicated it because we're, we get so focused on the technical language, and I'm all in favor of it, um, in technical language when it needs to be used. But if it, transubstantiation, that which this is, is no longer that which it was. Yeah. It's almost, I mean, that which this is, is now something different. And nothing like that exists in Aristotle or in any philosophical system St. Thomas isn't offering a how to the Eucharist. He's not using philosophy to explain the mystery away. He is saying this thing is doing something like nothing else that anything ever does. Ever, 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 ever. Well, and and we're used to these kind of discussions. We have these questions uh, around the Trinity as well, right? We have this really simple idea, which at its core looks terribly simple. And the more you dig at it and try to explain it and understand it, the more complex it gets because of these things like, oh, well, that's that's almost it. But there's also this over here. And finding the balance of these doctrines is very important. But also, as you said, sometimes we we focus so much on the complication that we miss the the mystery and the majesty of it as as individuals and it is important for the church to to take the time to to emphasize the doctrines in a precise way but it's also important for us as individuals to take the time and realize the implications of these beliefs, which we'll talk about right after this break. We're talking today with Dr. Timothy O'Malley, who's the Director of Education at the McGrath Institute for Church Life, about his new book, Real Presence. What does it mean and why does it matter? Available right now on Ave Maria Press. Come join the ongoing conversation over on social media, facebook.com slash Walls. On Twitter, the handle's at Outside the Walls. I want to hear from you. 
And we'll be right back with much more right after this break. You're listening to Outside the Walls with T.L. Putnam. Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, T.L. And we're talking today with Dr. Timothy P. O'Malley, the Director of Education at the McGrath Institute for Church Life. Find out more about them by going to mcgrath.nd.edu. Dr. O'Malley, thank you for joining us today. Oh, it's awesome. We're just talking philosophy and theology. It's my favorite. I tell you, this is the thing that actually brought me into the church um, and and helped me to understand things because I was uh, back in college way back when uh, I did a religion and philosophy minor because my school was too small to do them separated. So I had to do philosophy also in order to get my minor uh, and spent time with Plato and Aristotle. And so when someone started using that language uh, to explain what was meant by real presence in the Eucharist, it just kind of clicked. And I went, oh, if that's what it is, I don't really have a problem with that. That that makes a whole lot of sense. Um, but for for many of us, the language of philosophy doesn't really kind of permeate our everyday life. And so, um, and yet the language of the church, the language of theology is still the language of philosophy. So that creates a challenge for us um, that, that you deal with every day. How do we convey the language of theology and the language of the church into common parlance? That third word that I was having trouble remembering earlier that is significantly different between the way that it's used in philosophy and the way that it's used in common parlance is symbol and symbolically. Um, Because I always uh, initially heard, well, the Eucharist is not a symbol. And yet, as I got into philosophy, the Eucharist is a symbol, but it's more than just a symbol. And it's not a symbol in the way that we normally think of a symbol. Unpack that for us. Yeah. So symbol is an interesting one, uh, partially because we, as you said, we use it like mere symbol, which means it's not real. Symbol, of course, is a, is, a, is a term that has its roots, again, in Greco-Roman culture. Uh, the symbolon was something cut in half. Imagine you have one half of a coin and I have the other half of a coin, and we put the two halves together. We have come to together with one another, right? And uh, huzzah, it's sort of beautiful and wonderful, and now I know TL is 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 my friend, right? It, you know, uh, and I am his friend and we are together, right? So, of course, when you apply that to truth, right? So a symbol is something that is true, right? Mm-hmm. It is something that's made manifest or that you see, that you recognize, that reveals a truth that connects you to it. And in some sense, you can refer to the Eucharist as a symbol. I think it's it's dangerous if people mean like, well, the Eucharist is symbolic. It's the symbolic presence of Christ because too often for us, that means it's like a kind of representative presence, right. but it's not really there. But of course, it's symbolic of all sorts of things, right? It's symbolic, the Eucharist, of Israel's sort of being fed with manna in the desert. It's symbolic of the, uh, it's symbolic of uh all the sorts of ways that God has fed us in in space. It's symbolic of the language of the Psalms that the the Lord feeds us with the finest wheat. And Mm -hmm. right. So all that imagery is is sort of integral to understand the Eucharist. You can understand symbolism as part of it. Um, 
so that I think is one of the ways that the term can be used in an acceptable way, though I think it has to be nuanced, as you said. Right. Uh, and then the second part you were asking was a little bit about like how do we like med like interrelate philosophy and theology? Is that right? How do we how do we take the language of the church, this theological philosophical language, and and uh, translate that and present that to the basic layperson who who lives in the world of common parlance? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I actually think our first step, hilariously, is not that. Um, the language came about as a way of explaining practice and religious practice in particular, right? So we get this sense that like the church with a bunch of like very smart uh, men hanging out in spaces, uh, having sort of complicated discussions of doctrine, but things always arise from local practice, right? People adore the Eucharist. They were they were um, participating in things that we call ocular communion. That is, they wanted to gaze upon the Eucharist even when they couldn't receive it for whatever reason so that they had a sort of relationship with Christ. There was huge Corpus Christi processions through towns where people would adore Christ. Um, there were really brilliant um, altarpieces being made connecting the feast of the Annunciation with the Eucharist, that in the same moment that, that Christ becomes present on the altar is akin to what happened in the, in the Annunciation when the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have actually a, a musical version of that altarpiece in uh, Ave Verum Corpus, which you might have heard from Mozart or something like that, right? So this is everything. And so the first step to me, hilariously, and this is why I think the catechesis language to a certain extent has a problem. If you mean that in order to fix real presence as a problem, right, to get everyone to believe it, we have to just explain it, you're wrong, right? Um, it's not an intellectual problem first. It's a, a devotional problem, right? Why, do I, why did the doctrines make sense to me? It, it actually it started making sense to me because I was six and seven years old, and my grandparents, uh, who I dedicated this book to, would drag me to benediction of the Blessed Sacrament. And we would kneel, and we would sing... Uh, uh, the Tantum Ergo, and we would do the divine praises, and there was incense. I became an altar server, and I would serve at benediction, and I fell in love with the Blessed Sacrament and the Eucharist because I first learned to bend a knee before it, uh, before him, I should say, and in bending the knee before him, that was the first step, and at some stage, right, I asked, well, what does it mean that I bend the knee? And how can I bend the knee, right? What does that mean? And only then did some of the intellectual sort of arguments hold water for me, but it was because I first loved our Lord's presence in the Blessed Sacrament, and I grew up in a, in a church that treated it with reverence. And so I think our real problem with real presence, to be honest, is in most of our churches, we don't treat the Blessed Sacrament with sufficient reverence. We don't do benediction anymore. We don't... Um, we don't adore our Lord's body and blood in the way that the historical tradition has. And we do it because we're fast, we're sloppy, we're, we want to move as quickly as possible, um, all those things. And we forget that we are really feasting at the Supper of the Lamb. And so to me, it's devotion that, that leads the way uh, hilariously and not the intellect. I know that is against nearly the totality of why I have a job, but... Um, <laughs> You know, I uh, before coming into the church, I, I worked in Protestant congregations as um, as a liturgist and as a music director. And one of the things that was my job was to make sure that things kept moving. Right, that there was always there there were that everything there was a, a flow and a transition. And um, 
you always knew what was going to happen next. And so coming into the Catholic Church in a place where there was a particular reverence for the Eucharist, it was very jarring to me that all of a sudden there was not someone ready to step up as soon as the last thing was done, but there was a, a process that the lectors would come down to the edge of the altar and bow together and then go back up. And there was this silent movement that was taking place uh, and rubric that was taking place that just seemed foreign to me because of uh, the extra added uh, dead air, as it were, uh, which is horrible for radio. So I'm not going to demonstrate it here. Um, but but that's something that that really speaks to how we believe and how we treat the Eucharist. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny. I was asked the other day, my, my son is receiving his first communion this year, which has been a great gift for me. This book came out and I think the global pandemic renewed in me a devotion to the Blessed Sacrament. I really think this book for me was a conversion to learn once more to love that, which I loved so much as an eight-year-old lost in wonder uh, as we sang the Tantum Ergo in my parish. But you know, as I prepare my son for first communion, someone asked the other day, like, what are you doing? Are you teaching him like transubstantiation and things like that? I was like, no, he's seven. Um, <laughs> eight, like we're, we're, we're working on, like he knows that that's Jesus yeah. and it's our Lord. It's different than regular food. But my number one thing is to focus so intensely on his act of genuflection before the tabernacle. Yeah. I want him to know that he is, he will receive in April um, not what looks like bread and not what looks like wine, but but the God who who became flesh and dwelt among us and who even now uh, has pitched his tent among us in our churches. And um, when you bend your knee before that God, uh, you get lost in that same wonder. And that's what I want him to know, right? So it's, it is, the gift of Catholicism is it's not just a religion for the esthete or the sophisticated, or those who have the philosophical or theological education. My grandparents, who taught me almost everything I know about the Eucharist, had no clue about the doctrine of transubstantiation. I would say that they never heard of St. Thomas Aquinas, neither graduated from high school, and yet they taught me the love of the Blessed Sacrament, um, probably more than even my reading of like Augustine, Aquinas, Irenaeus, Mm-hmm. Um, it was through them that I learned everything. Back in college, um, I was given this book uh, to, to read the, the homilies in it, uh, The Awe-Inspiring Rites of Initiation, History of the RCIA. Uh, and the second half of that book, I was told by my Protestant professor, uh, ignore the first half of the book. The second half of the book is all these baptismal and, and Eucharistic homilies from the fourth century. You mentioned some of these in your book as well because they do— uh, really take the time to to pass along this devotional aspect of the Eucharist and don't spend a whole lot of time digging into the the hows, wherefores, and whys. Um, and, and yet they do foster this devotion and take these, these neophytes, people who have just come into the church, just been baptized, and said, okay, before we get started, here's what you should know. So how have these homilies affected you in your uh, in your teaching, both on, on the parental level and on the academic level? Yeah, it's, thanks for that question. I, I think one of the things for me is, right, so let's say you, let's say you're like me, that you learn this devotion, you learn the doctrines, right? So you learn that this, it can't be perceived, right, through taste or touch, 
it's a matter of faith alone suffices. It's only through hearing, which is through faith in St. Thomas, right? Mm-hmm. We have faith and therefore we give ourselves over to this presence and we say, it is there, it is real, it is my Lord, right? Wonderful, right? For me though, it's not over, right? Now you, your senses can learn to be configured and to conformed to see not physically, but spiritually more and more and more in the Blessed Sacrament. And so these homilies often help us to see more and more, right? Um, how do I, uh, whether it's these homilies, I, 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 get, I got really into like women Eucharistic mystics in college, um, these 12th, 13th, 14th century women who were writing on the Eucharist. And I, like there's an image in Hildegard of Bingen in her work called the Scivias, um, which is sort of visions that she had and interpretations of these visions. She's engaging in a kind of theological task. But as she approaches the Eucharist, right, she refers to it as uh, the betrothal gift of God. It's the wedding ring that's given. And she has a, a katena or connect collection of, of short scriptural phrases all around the Song of Songs. And it was in reading this, right, like reading something like that was like, wow, like when I approach the Blessed Sacrament, I'm approaching like the nuptial feast. And right? of course the mass says this, um, uh, happy are those who are called to the supper of the lamb, right? The wedding feast of the lamb yeah. in the book of Revelation. But right to now approach the Eucharist with these scriptures in mind changes my vision of what I'm doing. And it thus it enables me to see differently what looks like bread and wine, right? So it's these... It's this constant rich enrichment, an infusion of our imagination of scriptural images, of altarpieces, of poetry, all of which help us to approach the Eucharist with more devotion. It's really what theology is, right? Theology is faith-seeking understanding. So to a certain extent, we want to determine if a doctrine is apt or makes sense. But on the other hand, we also want the totality of our faith to be infused with all images, thoughts, doctrines, art, poetry that enables us to see in the Blessed Sacrament the body and blood of Christ that we cannot see physically but give ourselves over to and see with desire. So I think like all of these have helped me in that regard, Um, you know, whether you're talking about Cyril of Jerusalem, who's helping you see the like what the union between this particular act in the Mass and this act of reception is, and it's linked to the scriptures whether he's telling you to hold out your hands like a throne and to receive the, or, you know, not bad right now when so many of our churches, for those right. I prefer to receive on the tongue, not actually, I can, if you want to ask later, I'll tell you why, not as a sort of a traditionalist revolt, but I'll tell you why in a moment. <laughs> but if to receive in the hand right now during the pandemic, right, I'm not just schlepping up there, right? My hands are now a throne for the living God to dwell in. And now I take that, it's the posture, it changes my posture, it changes my devotion. So that's another way of thinking about the union, as you said earlier, between theology, intellect, and um, devotional life, practice, normal life. So last last question in a little bit of time we have left is this. Um, there is a, the, the practice of Eucharistic adoration. A lot of people aren't sure what to do with that time. Do I, do I go in for five minutes? Do I go in for an hour? What am I going to do with that time if I do? You've been talking about these things that have informed your practice of adoration. What would be a good starting place? Where would someone find the art or find the, the, the meditations uh, to help them with that practice as they go and sit and gaze before the, the, the Blessed Sacrament? 
Yeah, so when I first started doing Eucharistic adoration, I was a, like in a more extensive way. I tried to find things to occupy my time and my attention. Um, my recommendation, especially for someone who's just starting, is much simpler. You know, whether the Eucharist is exposed in a monstrance or whether it's in the tabernacle, to sit before the tabernacle and to just do what my one of my favorite sort of teachers of the spiritual life, Teresa of Avila, sort of bases her whole approach around, which is just do the Our Father. Um, Right, talk to the God who is our father and you're, we are his beloved child who art in heaven, um, right? Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come right here in this blessed sacrament, thy kingdom is here. Spend time in silence, go over each of the words slowly. And of course, give us today our daily bread, right? Uh, the church has always understood that phrase as Eucharistic. Um, give us today this most in Latin, this super substantial bread, not daily. Give us this really super substantial bread, this bread beyond all breads, and to just give gratitude. Eucharistic adoration is just learning to extend the gratitude in mass into the rest of our lives. And so my, my invitation is for people to just come in and be thankful that the God who created the heavens and the earth, who redeemed the world through the beloved son, Jesus Christ, and who remains present in his son and through the gift of the spirit, right? Give thanks that that's true and that that God is in our lives, even in the midst of suffering, right? So it's such a simple practice. Uh, you don't have to come in with full of texts and tomes. Mm -hmm. uh, although if you bring my book, I think that's, I think I'm supposed to. <laughs> the book again is Real Presence. What does it mean and why does it matter? It's available on Ave Maria Press. We've been talking with Dr. Timothy O'Malley, Director of Education at the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame. Dr. O'Malley, thanks for joining us today. Oh, thanks. It was beautiful to be here. If you missed any part of my conversation with Dr. Timothy O'Malley, maybe you want to go back and listen again or share it with your friends on social media. Have no fear. All of our episodes are archived over at OutsideTheWalls.com. Go take a look. Dig through the archives. Uh, while you're there, hit the subscribe button and never miss another episode again. It'll send it straight to your phone or your podcast aggregator of choice. And maybe you're like me and you just can't get enough of these conversations. Each and every week, uh, we record more than we're able to put on air, uh, and we, we keep that, and we put it in an extra segment, and we give it to all of those who support the show, keep us on the air uh, through our Patreon support community. While you're there at OutsideTheWalls.com, click that link in the top right-hand corner of the page that says Patreon Support the Show, and take a look, see if that's something that you want to be a part of, and get access to a whole slew of extra segments. But for now, let's go ahead and turn our attention to our readings from Scripture and from church history. That's the sound of the Verbum Library launching up. Go to Verbum.com and get your own Verbum Library. Try it free for 30 days and then pick the library that fits your needs. Our reading from Scripture today comes from the book of the prophet Isaiah. Thus says the Lord, In a time of favor... I answer you, and on the day of salvation I help you. I have kept you and given you as a covenant to the people to restore the land and allot the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, Come out, to those in darkness, show yourselves. Along the ways they shall find pasture, on every bare height shall, shall their pastures be. They shall not hunger or thirst, nor shall the scorching wind or the sun strike them. For he who pities them leads them 
and guides them beside springs of water. I will cut a road through all my mountains and make my highways level. See, some shall come from afar, others from the north and from the west, and some from the land of Syene. Sing out, O heavens, and rejoice, O earth. Break forth into song, you mountains, for the Lord comforts his people and shows mercy to his afflicted. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Can a mother forget her infant? Be without tenderness for the child of her womb? Even should she forget, I will never forget you. That reading comes from the book of the prophet Isaiah. And what a consolation that is for us today. Because many of us have felt desolate and in darkness and alone. And God says, even in the midst of all of the turmoil that surrounded his people at that time, and I believe that he says to us today, they shall not hunger or thirst. For he who pities them, I, their God, who guides them besides streams of water, will cut a road through all my mountains. And here we see the, um, the determination of God to pursue us and to be with us. Over and over in Scripture, he reiterates, you will be my people and I will be your God and I will dwell among you. And here we have this promise fulfilled in Jesus Christ as he comes in the incarnation to be Emmanuel, God with us. And then through the Paschal mystery, the life and the death and the resurrection, we see God going to extraordinary lengths to be with us. And then he says, it's better for you that I go away because if I go away, I will send a comforter. And so now through the work of Christ, we have the presence of the Holy Spirit with us, indwelling, not only dwelling with us, like around us or near us, but dwelling in us. We have the opportunity to be in the presence of Christ in the Eucharist. We have God's fulfilled promises right in our midst. And even if you, like the people of Israel, like Zion would say, but the Lord has forsaken me. Look at this last year. I've been forgotten. God comes and says to us, as he said to them, can a mother forget her infant and be without tenderness for the child of her womb? Even should she forget I will never forget you. See, I've written, I've inscribed your names on my hands. And we see that in the nails that Christ took for us, that we see in the crucifix every time we walk into our churches. Our reading from Church History Today comes from a letter by St. Athanasius. The word who became all things for us is close to us, our Lord Jesus Christ, who promises to remain with us always, he cries out saying, See, I am with you all the days of this age. He is himself the shepherd, the high priest, the way and the door, and has become all things at once for us. In the same way, he has come among us as our feast and holy day as well. The blessed apostle says of him who was awaited, Christ has been sacrificed as our Passover. 
It was Christ who shed his light on the psalmist as he prayed, You are my joy. Deliver me from those surrounding me. True joy, genuine festival, means the casting out of wickedness. To achieve this, one must live a life of perfect goodness and in the serenity of the fear of God, practice contemplation in one's heart. This was the way of the saints who, in their lifetime, and at every stage of life, rejoiced as at a feast. Blessed David, for example, not once but seven times rose at night to win God's favor through prayer. The great Moses was full of joy as he sang God's praises and hymns of victory for the defeat of Pharaoh and the oppressors of the Hebrew people. Others had hearts filled always with gladness as they performed their sacred duty of worship, like the great Samuel and the blessed Elijah. Because of their holy lives, they gained freedom and now keep festival in heaven. They rejoice after their pilgrimage in the shadows and now distinguish the reality from the promise. When we celebrate the feast in our own day, what path are we to take? As we draw near to this feast, who is to be our guide? Beloved, it must be none other than the one whom you will address with me as our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I am the way. As blessed John tells it, it is Christ who takes away the sins of the world. It is he who purifies our souls. As the prophet Jeremiah says, stand upon the ways and look and see which is the good path, and you will find it in the way of amendment for your souls. In former times, the blood of goats and the ashes of a calf were sprinkled on those who were unclean, but they were able to purify only the body. Now, through the grace of God's word, everyone is made abundantly clean. If we follow Christ closely, we shall be allowed, even on this earth, to stand as it were on the threshold of the heavenly Jerusalem and to enjoy the contemplation of that everlasting feast like the blessed apostles who, in the following the Savior as their leader, showed and still show the way to obtain the same gift from God. They said, See, we have left all things and followed you. We, too, follow the Lord and keep the feast by deeds rather than by words. That reading from church history comes from an Easter letter by St. Athanasius. And as I struggled with what to say uh, on today's show around this interview, this just kept coming back. Whatever the difficulty that you've gone through in this year, God is near to you. And his presence is near to you. He's given us the graces of the sacrament. He's given us the opportunity to meet him and to adore him in the sacrament and to encounter him through his word and to encounter him in so many ways. And this is what he longs for. Not for us to have it all together and to have just a really good, strong Lenten observance and look at us, but to recognize our need for him and to find the fulfillment in the truth that he is not far from any one of us. I want you to know that I'm praying for you. And if you have specific prayer requests that you want me to, to lift up, 
Well, come and share those with me on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls on Twitter. The handles at outside the walls. Today's show is brought to you by Michael and Julie Hyman and all of those who support the show through Patreon. Go to outsidethewalls.com, click that Patreon link and join their numbers. Until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.